Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the once-in-a-future official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com, coming to you on the Idle Thumbs Network. The elaborate introduction means that I must be Troy Goodfellow, your host for tonight, and with me is one of my regular founding panelists from Gamers with Jobs, fresh off a trip to South America, the amazing Julian Murdoch. Amazing. I like being amazing. Good evening, Troy. It's been a while. I haven't talked to you on the show. It's been ages. I know. I know. It's, you know, busy. But busy's good when you're a freelancer, right? Yeah, yes. It's also good when you're in PR, but I'd rather have, you know, my afternoons to siesta. But that's not going to happen. With us today is a very special guest, someone whose work I've admired for the last couple of years, especially. Uh, He is one half of the blogging and video casting team at the board game blog Shut Up, Shut Up, Sit Down Show, and also a freelance writer uh, in the PC gaming uh, field, Mr. Paul Dean. Hello, that's a really nice introduction, and I'm did not know that you were admiring me from afar, and I feel very shy now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your blog's amazing. I, I plug it uh, to as many people as I can. And, of course, your work at PC Games N, where you work with uh, Rob Zachney. Uh, I do. Rob's uh, really cool to work with and incredibly good at his job, which uh, is a, it may be a little bit intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he, he's very good. I mean, he's taken over a lot of my old beats and now he's doing stuff that I wouldn't even have dreamed of. He's just so super amazing and a great writer and a great guy. Uh, but yeah. he's not here and tomorrow on when I talk to him I'll deny I said any of this. So tonight we're going to, because it's me again, we're going to go back to, like for some reason I've become the board game guy even though I don't play a whole lot of board games for lack of time and uh, friends in my apartment building, but I am very interested in their design, and of course Paul's uh, blog is, uh, I think, an essential stop for people interested in board gaming, and Julian, of course, is you know kind of the king of this sort of thing. And what I want to talk about is something that um, we talk a lot on this show about user experience and customizing user experience, especially in video games. We talk about modding, we talk about how players create their own narratives, how they do cool and interesting things and experiment. I want to move that to the board game uh, side of things, how players create house rules, how they mod board games, so to speak, and uh, div- adapt them to suit their own play style or their own group's play style. Uh, this is a topic that Paul actually thought of, and I'd like to I guess I'd start with you, Paul, first because you're our guest. Um, is this something you see a lot of? No. Um Not really as much as I would like, or it could be that I'm just looking in the wrong places. This is something I have a lot of experience of among my friends, um, and sort of in my history, going back to when I played games as a kid, but I don't see it discussed on the internet so much. I don't see it um, as a regular topic on somewhere like Board Game Geek. I could just be looking in the wrong places, admittedly. But I don't, I don't find the discussions come up when I go to gaming clubs or when I'm in a gaming shop, for example. There's just this focus on learning the rules first. Could it just be because you have to know the rules before you can break them, more or less? Or Well, I, I, you know what? I have a couple of different theories, and they may be complete hogwash. But uh, back when I was a kid, obviously, we'd, I'm, I'm a gentleman of a certain age, and a lot of the board games I started playing, I started playing in the 80s when I had a couple of friends who I could play them with. I was a kid. I maybe didn't always understand all of the rules. I was, uh, like we all were as kids, I was a creative guy who wanted to do a lot of his own stuff anyway. So board games morphed and mutated for me uh, quite naturally. 
Uh, but I also didn't have the internet when I was eight years old because most of us didn't. <laughs> it didn't and exist, this, right? <sighs> not, not in most of our homes, certainly. And this is another thing is I, I do this automatically and a lot of people I know, a lot of board gamers do this. If you have a rules query, if there is a problem with the game, if you need to uh, jury-rig a solution or come up with a house rule, you just go to Board Game Geek and you may even find the guy who's actually designed the game. Right. Or someone, right. someone from Fantasy Often, often having published a sort of unofficial errata, right? I mean, that's extremely exactly. common. Like, before I even get the game in my house, I've often read the rules and the revisions that the designer of the game has put out, you know, unofficially and not in the box. Absolutely, yeah. You've, got, you've hit the nail on the head there. Now, Julian, you play a lot of board games. Um, uh, this is this something that you do a lot, or you see a lot. I mean, you have a semi-regular group. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a couple of semi-regular groups. I mean, I obviously have uh, two or three times a year. I have sort of big house conventions, which I think is becoming increasingly common. I now know at least yes. a dozen people who do that. Um, you, you know, it may just be once a year. Sometimes it's once a month where they, you know, people come and they play for a whole weekend. Um, and I think when you have a group like that, it lends itself to this sort of house ruling and customization. Um, much more so than it does if you're just sort of showing up at a convention or something like that and getting that chance to play a big game like maybe Titan that you don't get to play, you know, at home because you don't know enough people like that. Um, but but I want to get back a little bit to this idea of 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 the sort of history of house ruling and and things like that mm-hmm. because I remember very vividly, you know, when I was in college in the early '80s, um, you know, again effectively pre-internet. Um, you know, we would play whether it was, you know, advanced squad leader or, you know, some chip based war game. And what you had in the box was pretty much all you were going to get. You know, there really was no other source. And and this it really harkens back to me to playing the original three book white box Dungeons and Dragons, which is not a viable rule set at all. I mean, <laughs> it, it leaves so much open to interpretation that it was effectively impossible to play without house ruling. It was almost just like a skeleton of a game. And you were kind of expected to fill it in. And I think a lot of war games, um, you know, unintentionally ended up in the same position where you would be three moves into a new, you know, great SSI war game that you had on the table and you'd hit some situation for which there was no rules uh for which there were no rules and and that led to interesting i think to me some of the best conversations i've ever had about strategy right we'd end up fighting some hannibal scenario or something like that and you know you end up with a you know a bizarre situation where somebody takes over somebody's elephant and all of a sudden you've got elephant versus elephant combat and there was no rules for that and now you have an, a really interesting discussion about how to resolve that new in a sense become part of the game design process. And I find that really interesting. That is that is pretty much exactly my experience. And you've almost, I've, I've put together like a list of notes of points I want to try and bring up or hit. And you've already hit about half a dozen. <laughs> well, that's going to be a short podcast. Well, let's slow this conversation down a bit. And I mean, you, you came out immediately with D&D, which is one of the things at the top of my list, because uh, back... Uh, if you're a similar age to me, which you may be, I, I, it's very rude to ask, so I shan't ask. But uh, first and second edition D and D obviously had massive holes, and they had some very weird rules, and they had some very weird emissions. And you you had to do that, didn't you? You had to come up with solutions to problems that the game designers, I think, never anticipated. 
but um or they were too stoned to bother putting in the paper yeah i i couldn't possibly i wouldn't say i would (laughs) not make those allegations um but if you think of second edition particularly you got the whole bunch of following handbooks like you got the fighter's handbook you know the um the dm's guide was really an addition to the player's handbook you could kind of play just with the player's handbook but you know the the more books you got the more rules clarifications you got and i couldn't help but almost see those things as kind of patches when the fighter's handbook comes along and it gives you more character classes a couple of combat rule clarifications things that aren't in there before it to me that looks nowadays like a software patch almost yep. Yeah, with the added benefit of being optional, right? I mean, that's the, yes. the interesting thing about about certainly console gaming is is patches are effectively not optional anymore. I mean, I can't even get my PS3 to turn on half the time unless I say yes to some form that says I'm going to accept some patch to something. Um, and and with with physical games, those things are entirely optional, and that's part of what I love about it. And I and I see that trend now. Um, in particularly sort of good, meaty, uh, you know, Euro games where there's lots of optional stuff that you can kind of flip on and off when you're playing a game. I mean, Agricola comes to mind there, right, where where the base game can be quite simple. But it sort of comes in the box with like four or five different card decks, and you can you can tune and tune the game right out of the box to be very multiplayer solitaire or very screw your neighbor interactive or even quite cooperative, and and that's all right there in the box, and um, that's a trend that I love. Right, I love seeing those options for people to really dig in and and like I said, become part of that game design process. And this is, I, I like the point that you made there, actually. This is another good point that you can, it's got that kind of modular design where you can actually almost like you're flicking things in an options menu in a game. You can turn elements of the game on and off. Right. Um, I, I didn't see that so much in the 80s, as far as I can remember. And it's quite nice to see that happening with a lot more modern board games. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's some uh, sort of a maturation of both gamers and game designers, right? I mean, yes. folks who are designing games now, for the most part, are not the same people who were designing games in the eighties. There, there, there are exceptions, right? I mean, Larry Harris is still kicking, and he's still making Axis and Allies variants, and that's great. Um, and certainly, we've got guys like you know Richard Borg, you know, who are you know older than I am, and we're making games that I was playing in the eighties when I was you know eighteen, nineteen years old. But for the most part the games that we're all kind of latching onto are coming from a slightly younger crowd. They're folks who are a little bit closer to, you know, the mid forties to mid fifties range. Um, and a lot of the folks who are playing these games are in that same range. So we've all been through this experience. We all know how painful it is to look up rule 2.1.1.3 and then not get clarification out of it. <laughs> yep. and, and so I think that there's sort of this expectation that the player is kind of working with you as a designer. Certainly when you're talking about the, the nerdier hardcore games, probably not the case if we had Rob Davio in here talking about risk variants, but, but I think in the more hobby oriented market, there's this expectation the gamer's working with you. I, I think that's an interesting point. And um, I want to bring up something that could be, I could be opening a can of worms here. Obviously, you guys have Warhammer and Games Workshop in the US and Canada as well, don't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Um, we, it was always a big thing here in the 80s. I don't know how quickly it traveled around the world, 
but a, a massive, massive influence on me, probably my primary board gaming influence, was uh, the original Hero Quest, which came out in the late 80s, which was very big here. Steve Baker, yeah. Really? Um, it was a, you know, a, a dungeon crawling game that really appealed to kids when I was a kid, and there wasn't anything like that around. That was followed by the maybe not so famous, but the very good advanced Hero Quest. Yep. Which had procedural, I think it was kind of reskinned as Warhammer Quest, which I don't know if that was a big hit, but it had procedural dungeon generation. Um, it had options for solo play, but it came with an enormous amount of basically blank templates in it. It gave you like some stock characters, some stock bad guys, and I think near the back of the book somewhere there was basically a, bla- a blank monster template and a couple of other blank things. And the idea immediately was you know how the game works, make something, put stuff in there, um, procedurally generate your dungeons, you know, here is a short campaign, you know, you can play through that, but everything was written in the manual as if to say, this is a launch pad, go out there, uh, make everything, pretty much make make your gaming experience, and when the first expansion came out, or the only expansion, which was called Terror in the Dark, that just had more of the same kind of thing. It had more tables for generating more quests and campaigns, right, more right. bad guys to throw in. And it was just like people were giving you tools and giving you a kind of a dungeon sandbox and saying, this isn't us telling you what to do. This is just us giving you the tools. Right. And right. when you're about 10 years old, that's amazing. Right. And, you know, I think it's where even, even without Advanced Hero Quest sort of codifying how to do that, um, you know, Hero Quest lent itself to just a raft of both excellent and terrible fan-made expansions, right? And um, <laughs> folks that, well, and, and I mean, and that's awesome, right? I mean, that's part of what we're right. talking about here is that, um, I mean, you know, Hero Quest had its original expansion. I can't remember what it is, Growl of something or other. Um, and, and, you know, that was sort of more stuff you could do. But then I remember vividly playing, and it wasn't that long ago that I actually first played it, because I actually still have a copy of all the HeroQuest games, um, something called uh, The Mountain Pass or The Mountain Keep or something like that, which was... Kellogg's Keep? I, I can't remember the exact name, but it was entirely fan-made. It was sort of print-and-play stuff, um, and it was fantastic. And And that's what's so cool to me is that these games that have these systems built in that are so easy for players who have more time than I do to create cool stuff that I can download for free and print out and just, you know, (laughs) you know, plan, but play their version of the game. And that's, you know, there's a whole movement of that now for all sorts of games, not just sort of these classic old games, um, you know, with, with fan-made card expansions for Dominion and all sorts of stuff like that. And I sort of feel like we're in this golden age of modability in board games um, because the print-and-play stuff is now so easy to do and so professional. Print-and-play has really come quite far, hasn't it? And I'm quite surprised at that. And I think that's a natural evolution of the internet where people have either printers themselves or access to some fairly cheap, um, you know, cardstock laminating type things where you can effectively pull a game out of thin air. Well, and, you know, I think even more exciting is there's these services now like ArtsCow and a few other places where uh, people are sort of resurrecting games that are long out of print. I mean, this is slightly off topic, but, you know, Dune, which is just a classic strategy board game, 
uh, hasn't been in print forever as far as I know. And, um, and probably only 25 people ever bought it when it came out. Um, but it's fantastic. And there are now all of these different beautifully designed versions of it that you can effectively order by sort of taking a PDF file and uploading it to ArtScout and, you know, ordering this $5 card deck and that $10 card deck and having, uh, you know, three or four mouse pads printed with certain things on them and and people have done vastly superior graphic designs for this game than it shipped with uh and and i've seen uh you know one guy at a at pax east had what looked like a thousand dollar version of dune just beautifully printed and and he, he wasn't an artist it wasn't like he went home and made this on his desk he basically just ordered all the pieces from all the places you have to order this stuff from and probably spent i don't know 150 bucks doing it but ended up with what was effectively a work of art tribute to this classic game. Um, and, and, and with some fixes, right? I mean, that was certainly not an unbroken game. You know, the version that people are printing is one that's kind of been patched up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think partly from the, the, from the beauty of it all, it's also just a remarkable thing that people are able to effectively reskin these games, I guess. And just make them look that much prettier and that much lovelier. I, I remember a lot of games I enjoyed, again, in the late 80s period, sort of victory games, Avalon Hill type things, looking a bit beige and a bit flat. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yes. Although often being very good. I, I did a... Um, at the moment, Quinns and I are in different countries and we're actually separately writing things and bouncing stuff, bouncing ideas back and forth. Um He's done a couple of really good blog posts about things he's been playing lately. I dived into my cupboard and I pulled out Ambush, which is an old game from the 80s, which is a solitaire, solo, squad-based thing, which I think was influenced by Advanced Squad Leader. Yeah, we talked about um, Ambush on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when Bruce Garrick Fantastic. Yep. Right. Um, and I, I pulled that out and I realized that I'd actually modded that. I, I just pulled it out to do a retrospective, but I found I'd written... Uh, a load of rules for completely different units and weapons because although I couldn't create any more components myself and didn't have the artistic skill to really, um, you know, draw any new maps or come up with any new rule systems, I could just make a bunch of new units. I understood how things behaved in the game, so I could effectively make a modern version, different units, different weapons, a few different things happen. And this is partly what inspired me to sort of come on and talk about this now, is I realise now that I've dug out some other stuff. I spent a lot of my younger years just basically trying to change everything I could, whether it was reskinning, changing rules, bringing in pieces from other games. And of course, because uh, Warhammer particularly had White Dwarf magazine, which I think you guys have out there. Oh, yeah. The yeah, we still get yeah. it. You, you inevitably get uh, loads of pullouts, which are extra rules, extra things for games that, that you may own. Yeah, different and scenarios I, and all sorts of cool stuff, yeah. Exactly. Um, and I realize now, you know, that, that my young gaming period was actually really quite creative. I'd like to think. Yeah, and it's something that I find missing from video gaming in general. Well, the, is that because the barrier of entry is higher? Do you think that if you're going to make a mod for something like XCOM, you need to have art and design people i'm not sure if it's missing i'm not even thinking about missing in video games there's so much modding in video games we talk about quite a few mods in video games i mean there are certainly bigger ones uh that require a professional level but i don't think there's any less customization is there 
Well, it just, I think there is a skill barrier. I mean, certainly there are games sure, that but... are designed to be sort of instantly modding. Like I, you could sort of say Minecraft is a game that you sort of step in and start modding from the first second you're clicking on a brick. But, yeah, but, you're, not, but you're not suggesting that, you know, what you do with your board games is necessarily normal or what most people use the customization. Like people, if I was to go to our local board gaming cafe, go to Snakes and Lattes, I doubt I would find a lot of people there and say, oh yeah, here's how I modded, here's how I changed this game for the the week. But you might find house rules. I mean, right, like Monopoly is the most house-ruled game in the world. Right. Um, And, you know, that's a game that virtually everybody has sitting in a corner somewhere. And, you know, the the most common thing people do is, you know, take all the fine money and stick it in uh, free parking. And that's not in the rules anywhere. Sure. That's totally... That's just a stupid house rule that makes the game last even longer than it should. And I was going to say, why do people do that? Where did that come from? <laughs> it's some sort of like American masochism, right? Where people right, like really want to I, inflict a, the hell that is monopoly on other people. But I, I have German friends who did that, and I thought it was a continental thing because I never did it when I was younger. So I, I'm trying to trace like the etymology of this this particular rule. I, yeah, that's, that's how, how I learned the game. You know, that's how, where I went. It wasn't in the rule book. It doesn't the not the rule book. The rule box. So it was in the back of the back of the box where the rules were. So I don't have mm. no. It wasn't a. That's how I, how I learned the game. That's how it was taught to me. Uh, um, it's but in, but computer games you don't have house rules because generally you're unless it's a, a multiplayer game. There are house rules in multiplayer games all the time. You know, you 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 can't do this. No grenades allowed. Uh, Whatever you're doing, when you're playing online servers, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of true. I mean, the, 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 that, that's really a house rule. Yeah, uh, that's true. And certainly, when you think about the setup for games like, uh, say, the Solar Empire, even Civilization, um, they often can get quite granular in terms of the stuff you can turn off and on. Yeah. And, and and so, I, in a sense, that's a little bit house ruling. Right, but in a sense, but really, but generally, computer games are they're, they're, they're a closed architecture. You can't change the rules that are in there. You can change the setup when you go in, but you can't change the rules of the game because it's a closed system. Whereas a board right. game, you're touching the system. You are part of the system. Um, so there's, you, you, so you can change things. You can choose what to ignore. You know, in Civ, yeah, in, the, Civ, the I, in Civ, I can't ignore the fact that well, it takes this much food to gain population. That's just the way it is. Yeah, you you again it's the barrier of entry. There's not really anything preventing you from actually physically interfering with the game. Right. So, what makes a good I mean talking a lot about how let's try to get off house rules and focus on the, you know, the larger meteor stuff here on how people change their games and adapt their games. I want to go back to little baby Paul fixing ambush. <laughs> um <laughs> As you look back on how you changed it, I mean, and you see you were influenced by what was going on at Warhammer, and you just wanted to have some new and neat units, and you were limited by your stubby little fingers and your artistic skills, but you wanted to make... <laughs> uh, could you tell me, you know, looking back on that, uh, so you were creative, were you thinking of these this, these changes in a game sort of way? How do people, when they first start doing this, um, what changes do they make? Do they go into rules? Is it just adding new stuff? Is it always a question of more? Because you talked, uh, Julian, about people making new card sets for Dominion, and if there's any game that does not need another card set, it's, freaking, <laughs> it's Dominion. Oh, he's got a point there. Uh, oh, but, you yeah. know, but that's right what people But that's what people are making, because, oh, more, more, more. Um, so what do people, when they get into this, uh, what, what interests them, what draws them? I want to start with Paul, and then uh, Julian, because you're uh, quite versed in this, talk about what you're seeing in the scene. 
Why? Um, yeah, first of all, this is interesting. This is a bit like being on a therapist's couch, I guess, because I'm really <laughs> regressing. Um, but it's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not sure if there's an easy answer to it. I think there was uh, a desire for more in terms of scope. Certainly, I mean, I did this a lot with Advanced Hero Quest. I did this with some d and I was playing with friends at the time. And I think... As I got older, I think something called Skills and Powers, which was about D&D 2.5, came out, which is full of a lot more customization where you can, I think you can give characters attribute points and that allows you to effectively buy skills that they wouldn't usually buy. And that becomes much more customizable. Uh, I was looking for customization, I think. I was looking for maybe keeping the, the base rules of the game the same but thinking of ways to squeeze more things into that system. For example, in Ambush, I don't think there's any airplanes at any point. I don't think anything flies around. Probably because the maps are too small, things would just shoot overhead instantly. But it does make you think, is there a way I can incorporate that sort of just on top as an extra layer of rule, something that could come up? How would I do that? Um, In Advanced Hero Quest, you had a campaign system whereby... Between all the quests and the adventures you went on, you rolled on certain tables to see what random events happened to your party between adventures, which was great. But after you played that with your cousin, you know, a dozen times, it gets a bit samey. So instantly you think, what other stuff could happen to people? Where is the scope here? And I think certainly when you're a young, when you're a kid, when you're a young gamer and you play things to death, you very quickly see where the holes are, where the flaws are. Um, or where things are lacking and particularly I think that was me it was where things were lacking where I thought things felt empty and unrealistic I suppose yeah and I I think that the that that kind of expansion of scope is is also I think the most comfortable place certainly if you're coming up from kind of a a grognardy wargamer perspective right so if you've if you played a bunch of advanced squad leader right that's a game that you know when you buy the game certainly in the current version you're not even buying a game. You're buying a freaking rule book. And then it's just a question of what expansion you're buying to the rule book that's actually going to let you play the damn thing and mm, which yes. maps it's got. And so if you're already t- attuned to this idea that, well, I have this basic rule set and now I have to mod it, you know, in this case, by buying something from, you know, uh, you know, Multiman or, you know, back in the day, you know, Avalon Hill um, or, you know, whoever hell owned the license before that. Um you know, that's a, that's a comfortable thing. You're used to the idea that, oh, I'm going to get the fins and the fins are going to have different stats and a little bit of a rule set tweak. And they're going to have a map set that's a little bit differently. So the idea of saying, well, I'm going to make up my own units, let me get a bunch of blank cardboard. It seems like a very natural thing to do because that's how that game was built already, right? You've sort of been shown the way as it were. And I think that things like Warhammer, um, you know, I love tabletop mini stuff. I think naturally is a first place where you start expanding scope, where you start saying, well, what if I could bring this kind of unit in? And what, you know, what if this Tyranid Carnifex was twice as powerful as he is now and cost twice as many points? What would that be like? Right? You already get all that stuff in White Dwarf every month. It's pretty easy to just expand on this example of expand, expand on expansion, expand on that idea that you've already got from something like White Dwarf. Yeah, I th- I think this is exactly it. And um you I I guess you I think you said baby steps and I think what you do is you feel comfortable sort of gently pushing in these directions without changing the base rules and later as you go along if you feel like it you start tweaking some of the base rules and um 
going back, I think, to D&D skills and powers, it kind of, I, I was fascinated by that because it did that somewhat. The basic rules of the game stayed the same, but there was slightly different character character creation, there was slightly different customization, and it's all a gradual process, whereas you, you know, you play the game, you understand what works, what doesn't, and where there is room for for expansion. I think it's a kind of organic process. Well, that's right. how it felt for me. You know, and that doesn't require doesn't require much either, right? So, I mean, you know, uh, I used to do this with Ogre was you know one of my favorite sort of early strategy games where it's you know you can just change the point value of units, right? There were some basic rules about how much an extra howitzer should cost and things like that, um, and that you start blurring the line between just making up a scenario and making up whole new units. Um, and, and so that all, I think is, is a very comfortable expansion of scope. And I think that's sort of the, probably where most modding starts. I think the other thing that happens, um, very often is reduction in scope that happens probably now more often than, uh, than I'd care to admit where there's some big giant game and there's some system in it that just doesn't make much sense. Or, or it just adds complexity without actually adding much to the game at all. Um, and so I'll often, you know, I'll pick a game that I know particularly well and I'll play it with my kids or I'll play it with sort of less hardcore gamers. And I'll say, you know what, we don't need to play with this whole section of the rules because it doesn't actually have anything to do with anything. Right. And, um, and, and a lot of games, uh, come sort of with that idea in mind that there's two sets of rules. There's the basic rules and the advanced rules and everybody always dives straight into the advanced rules. <laughs> and I find about 50% of the time, those advanced rules actually suck. All right. There's just a complexity for complexity's sake, you know, so, you know, maybe a game has a whole drafting system in place when in fact the drafting component is terrible, right. Or there's a whole auction system for resources when in fact you could just pick, you know, have people go around and move the starting player and it would be just fine. Do you find you're doing this very often? Because that, that's a thing I've not done so often, although I have done it. You know, I, again, it happens more in house cons when I've got a bunch of folks that, you know, have very different levels of interest and depth. Um, and, and sometimes you want to play something quickly that might take too long otherwise. Um, and so, you know, and, and I also do play a lot with, you know, younger kids, you know, sort of in the 10 to 14 range because it's the, my oldest daughter is that that age um so oh, yes. yeah in there i do find myself doing that and then it's a nice way to sort of wean them up to more complex stuff um certainly in role-playing games i do that all the time right you just skip whole sets of the rule set it's just because they don't encumbrance really yeah exactly right right psionics grappling right yeah fuck me <laughs> i don't need to learn your goddamn grappling rules <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Actually, this is uh, this is a very good point. And again, I feel like I'm going back to some of the older D and D I played because, well, I, I don't know, third, fourth edition, they're probably still not great for that. But uh, yeah, there was a whole lot, whole bunch of stuff that we house ruled when we role played because it was just horror if you actually tried to use the system that was in the book. Horror, particularly for second edition, sometimes finding exactly where it was in the book, but also. It was bizarre how, how broken some of them worked, uh, how broken some of them were and how they didn't work. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, 
you know, I'm sort of in an interesting position because I know a lot of board game and role playing game designers. And a lot of those are the folks that show up at my house to play these things. And quite often we'll be, you know, moving back and forth between, you know, playing a game and then play testing a game and playing a game and play testing a game. And when you're play testing a game with somebody, particularly if you're play testing the game with the designer, it's not uncommon to be like, you know, 20 minutes into a game and have him change the rules. Right. <laughs> right? Which is always a really interesting experience. Um, but again, you know, I think that that's at a certain point, that kind of thing starts feeling very natural where you start saying, well, let's, let's play this. I mean, I can't, you know, I'm good friends with Rob Davio and I can't tell you how many freaking risk variants I've play tested over the years. And, wow. you know, half the time, you know, most of them never get made. Right. Um, but you know, that's a game that is almost sort of like a, it's just sort of a board and a palette and you can kind of in the basic rule set you can describe in three and a half minutes. And then you can add all sorts of interesting strategic complexity and stuff to it that may be really awesome and may just be complexity for complexity's sake. Um, so I, I love that idea of sort of building a game from the ground up. Um, and, and, you know, there've been, there've been some examples of, of whole games that are designed that way where they sort of start complex and they build up, um, you know, risk legacy being the most obvious example recently oh, yes. from yeah. Rob, um, you know, and, and that was sort of where that came from was the idea that the risk thing is a palette and then you just start layering stuff onto it and it gets more interesting as time goes on. Um, but, but I think that that's, I think that's inherent in board gaming, that kind of lust for increasing complexity and scale. And sometimes <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Sorry. I'm, I know I'm just rambling on. No, no, go. It's um, good. But but sometimes there's whole systems that you want in a game that don't exist. And the, the classic yeah. example to me is information control. Um, and there are quite a few games that I have played where you take, you know, uh, Risk is uh, Risk 2210 we've done this with, where you take the game and instead of having three players all be in the same room, each player has their own setup and you put them in a different room and you play with Cloud of War and Couriers and spies, right? So you only are seeing what's actually happening on the fronts. You don't actually change the rules at all. You just completely change the information delivery system, right? That's a whole wow. new system that you can layer onto any game um, and and makes for all sorts of interesting play. I've also seen it done and participated, but not been one of the core players in an you know endlessly long game of diplomacy that was played that way. I'm sorry. Oh no, it was brilliant. It was, you know, peak experience. But but again, you're you know, that's a you know, a very straightforward, if not simple, system that you can add this whole other system for information control on top of that makes for a fantastic sort of convention style experience. I think actually there was something you said a little while back that I picked up on, which I think actually is a quite normal experience, which is you you said that you are almost making the game as you go along and I'm I'm sure that's been my experience of pretty much any role-playing situation I've ever been in. Quite a lot of board gaming situations where you do actually find you are playing something, there is a problem, and you and your friends, you, you and your friends establish a house rule or um, almost a toy cost kind of rule, and then that becomes canon from then on. And I, it's probably not even a, a particularly important point to make because I'm sure we've all done it and anybody listening has done it and that all our own games have, have evolved very slightly in this way. 
Right. And yeah, and I, it's always sort of interesting to me how those house rules get communicated. I mean, there's sort of an urban folklore component to that, too, where you show up at somebody else's house and and you need to sort of learn how the games are played. You know, if you ever play poker and go from one house, you know, one game to the next, right, there's sort of this handshaking process of, well, you know, do you know, can you can you raise after a call or, you know, or what's the what's the protocol here? Right. Because you don't want to get into a fist fight over it later. No, I was I was about to say you're I was about to say you're absolutely right and that you turn up at a gaming group and you may not know everyone there and they could have their certain rule for critical hits or if there are units in the same space on the board or something. Poker, I never thought you would you would say that goes on that there's this seedy underworld of poker cheats out there. Because <laughs> surely poker is set in stone. No, not at all. Certainly not at like house games of poker. No, no, no. Because Oh not, my god. Not only not only are there a billion variants of poker, right? I mean everybody's got the games that they play at their poker you know their weekly poker game you go you know some people just play texas hold'em and some people play crazy crap with wild cards and shit you stick on your forehead and you know it's just stuff that it just becomes like farcical where there's no strategy anymore and it's just might as well throw all the money in a pot and you know whoever grabs it first wins um so you know that there's that aspect of sort of going to somebody's house for poker night but then there's sort of the hidden protocols of like what's acceptable behavior and what's not you know i mean because like most most people's poker games i've ever been to there's no stated limit in most home poker games but there's sort of an expectation that you know if if it's a quarter ante you're not going to say five dollars on the first bet because that's just sort of a dick move, right? If the buy-in was 20 bucks. And so there's there's these these hidden rules there too. And I've seen that in strategy games too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I've definitely yeah, played... You no, know, no, you're right. You're absolutely right because I've I've seen people, you know, we or we've all done it. I think we've we've opened up a board game and we've taken a card out of a deck or something. We're not playing with that unit. It's too powerful. Right. Um, or you sit down or there might be an informal rule in your role-playing group that... And this has been a rule with a lot of groups I played with, that if there is a player character and a non-player character in a life and death situation, you always save the player character because it's more friendly to the players around the table to to do that. Um, Or, yeah, you know, certain units get cut out of a game because they don't quite work, you think. Um, I should probably do that with Arkham Horror a bit more, and I have a feeling uh, I might enjoy it, or me and my friends may play it a bit more if we you know, go through it with a fine tooth comb. Yeah. And just pull units or pull cards that just break the game. Uh, you know, I mean, I've definitely, there's all sorts of games where that sort of stuff happens. And, and again, it happens most in games that are naturally customizable, like something like Agricola, right? I mean, in Agricola, there's a, you know, there's a, I think it's called the gamers deck that has like 12 really cool cards in it. And like 10 really bogus, dumb, stupid cards that just ruin the game as soon as they come out. And so, you know, you yank those ones out and you keep the fun ones in. Um, and, and certainly in a game like Dominion, right, when you're going through that process of deciding which decks you're going to have as part of the, you know, the cornucopia that you're picking from, there, you know, there are definitely certain ones that people just don't put in. Like, oh, God, we can't play with that one. That one sucks, right? And that one just sort of gets banished forever. Um, and, I mean, to some extent, isn't this what's behind all the collectible card game stuff, too? Hmm. Um. One thing um, I want to get to, let me see a, a little bit of uh, on the computer side of modding, is where people make a mod where they 
try to plug it a different genre into a different system. You see this sometimes in the Half-Life uh, games, see people doing, uh, f- turning you know civilization to a role-playing game. You know, all kind playing with the experience systems and all this sort of thing. You have some really neat stuff going on under the, under the surface. You know, think of an example of a board game of of, of board games being combined. Uh, systems and being completely imported. I mean, we've talked a little bit about changing information systems, Julian. But I mean, board games come with parts, right? I mean, they have, you have meeples, you have dice, you've got chits. Um, have you ever had the urge to just, you know, mix them together? I I could say a lot, so I'd like Julian to go first. I know, because actually, get I, away. I'm just not a... I'm not naturally a game designer. I sort of know my limitations. And so that to me starts being a little bit like starting with a blank piece of paper and saying, let's just make a game. And I know lots of folks who do that. I love hanging out with them and playing their stuff. And every once in a while, I have a good idea. But to me, the idea of starting with, say, you know, let's take Endeavor and Settlers of Catan and make a new game about, you know, exploring, I don't know, whatever. I, I, my jaw drops the minute people start doing it. I listen to other people talk about that stuff and it's, it's really interesting. And there's a guy, um, everybody should know named Daniel Solis, uh, on, uh, Twitter. And he's a, he's a game designer. He's designed, you know, quite a few really interesting role-playing games. Um, one in particular called Doe, Legend of the Flying, uh, Legend of the for flying temple or something like that. Um, and, and a lot of what I would call smelly hippie RPG stuff, but every day on Twitter, he designs a game every day. He puts in like 10 Twitter messages. Here's the game. Here's the core mechanic. Here's how you win and lose. And I'm baffled by that level of creativity. So the idea of combining, uh, like a bunch of stuff in my basement to make a new game. I just, I'm not that smart. Wow. I, I will check this guy out because I'm not familiar with him, and that sounds absolutely fascinating. I, pr- I probably am not as good as you. If you feel not keen to do it, that's probably better than my approach when I was younger, which was to throw everything together <laughs> and make a lot of games that didn't work, and I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, when I was about 12, I tried to make... Something that was a bit like a advanced hero quest, basically a version of Wolfenstein 3D. It was a Wolfenstein 3D board game because I figured with all the advanced hero quest corridor and room components and with a bunch of toy soldiers, it'd be fairly easy to make a board game using some of the same rules because, you know, they had rules for bows and arrows. So we could have rules for guns. You go into a castle, you run around, you shoot Nazis. And I discovered, as, as I discovered many times since, that what tends to happen with a certain rule set for a certain game is it could be very focused on a particular kind of play or a particular kind of thing that happens in that game. And what I mean is Advanced Hero Quest is very based around melee combat. Um, second and third edition D&D is also very much based around really a lot of melee and a lot of uh, things that an individual person does. With, I'm trying to think of how to explain it. it it's very much focused around one person and a short amount of space around them, whatever those activities are. Um, I, I could never find a way to get good ranged combat into second or third edition D&D, <laughs> a way to get people shooting at each other with guns. I couldn't get that to happen on the tabletop. I needed more initiative mechanics. I need, needed mechanics for cover. 
Um, and then all of a sudden you've got advanced squad leader and nobody wants to play it. Well, this, it, <laughs> I, I, well, I, I didn't, I didn't get that far because I wasn't good enough, but I, I, I very quickly learned that, um, certain things work, work better based on certain rule sets. And I, I, when I was about 12 years old, I couldn't think of a way to get advanced hero quest to work with machine guns, basically, because <laughs> we're talking about, I think, a system where one side goes first and the other side goes, and I had rules for, like, well, you can fire this many bullets with this gun in this time. And I had pe- guys who walked into a room and just shot everyone instantly before the other side could have a turn. And it was ridiculous. But I, I you know, I, I suddenly realized there are all these other considerations when you change what's happening in the game. Obviously, any game designer would tell me this. You you look at the core mechanics and you wonder if the core mechanics are even made to do that. And if not, you have to get rid of them. You have to start from scratch or you have to take a totally different approach. Right. And and I've played a lot of really crappy games. I mean, that's the other thing too is, uh, you know, uh, certainly I've played a lot of really crappy games that actually got published and were in boxes and I wanted my money back or was happy I hadn't paid for the copy I was playing. (laughs) But I've also played a lot of really crappy games from really brilliant designers who like had a core idea and didn't work out. And, you know, that idea may show up five years later in some other game as a cool mechanic for something else. But I, you know, I think the best designers just iterate the crap out of this stuff and they test it and they test it and they test it. And obviously with a house rule that you're going to use four times in your life or something like that, you're never going to get the plays to show whether or not it's balanced or not. Well, but is that really a purpose of a lot of house rules or mods? Aren't uh, some of them just, you know, let's see what happens? Experimentation. Yeah, I mean, some, we, don't want to, we don't want to approach all of this as serious game design because I know that, you know, I haven't done a lot of modding or customization in computer games, but generally it's, well, let's see what happens if I make the Napoleonic Imperial Guard a little bit stronger. Let's see right. if they how that changes things you know that's just a very simple thing it's just for me it's not something i distribute but you know it's experimentation right i don't think you need to approach all of these things as you know well you can't iterate it therefore you know the wonder is going to suck yeah it's going to suck most things are going to suck <laughs> it's a house rule made by you know people who are probably i mean it's, i think of that probably the most common house rules are are drinking games right yeah. i mean drinking games are effectively a rule, that's a system you're introducing into the game. Uh, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to think. I have innovation. I'm trying to think of a way to turn innovation into a drinking game over the holidays. Because the only get anybody to play it in New Brunswick, I think. <laughs> if I can say there's beer at the end. Uh, so you know, I know my family. What can I say? That's uh, pretty funny. <laughs> I like that we've got onto this. That we've got onto. We are looking at the full spectrum of all games, right, mean, from drinking games but, to advanced squad leader chits. Well, I mean, just drinking games are a mod if you think about it. I mean, because you have to think about a well-done drinking game. We are, you have to think of how you know players get impaired, the chances of certain things happening. Um, do you want to penalize the losers or impede the winners? How do all of these things work out in a properly balanced, well-designed drinking game? <laughs> and never... that's, I guess you have to sort that out at the start because you're not going to sort it out at the end. <laughs> yes. right, it's just a fist fight later. Well, it's the kind of thing you generally do once, I would think. Uh, I don't do a lot of drinking games. The ones I do are generally tied to political debates or things I have to suffer through. 
Uh, okay. But yeah. But, yeah. but there but there are board game drinking games. This is there, you know. I mean, b- 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 beer pong well, is a sports drinking game, and there are well, sport in quotation marks. Uh, and there are lots of drinking board games. Well, I mean, and there's, I mean, and I mean, there's, there are games me, about drinking that are sure. board games, like Red Dragon Inn. There yeah. you go. I mean, oh God, yes. <laughs> there's a great one right there. I mean, you have a lot of drinking at your rabbit cons, Julian. Don't you I, don't you do drinking games there, or is it just you really just drink? people at that point just start go to the garage and start playing guitar really badly and oh, that's right. or something, yeah, um, or or you know the rock band comes out and all of a sudden we've got thirty seven people singing rat songs. Or something. <laughs> that's yeah. right, because because Rabbit Con is also a, a, now a, a a music festival as well as <laughs> only in the summer a big bard game convention. House. Um, okay. So, uh, Julie, I want to get back to one of your one of one of the very first shows we did, like ages and ages ago. You talked about your nuclear mod for Agricola. Yeah, which I never finished. Which you, I, I, it, I want it, you to. It, a lot of listeners have come to the show ultimately late. This is from very very like episode three or four, like way back in the dawn of time, as far as the head is concerned. Explain to our listeners, our new listeners, okay, why what you introduced. Yeah. The problem is, the problem is, I love Agricola. It's one of my favorite games, frankly, of all time. I, I'm, I've played it solitaire. I played it two player. I played it all the ways you're not supposed to play it. I own all the crap for it. I bought all the bits for it. You know, I have you know little sheep and everything. So I mean, it's a game that I've probably spent two hundred dollars on to make you know something I really want to play. And there are probably in my extended group of 80 or so people that will ever show up at my house to play a board game, there are probably 10 that actually also enjoy this game as much as I do, and which I find sad. And the reason most of them, most of the people who don't like the game say they don't like the game is because it is the world's most depressing theme. And the theme <laughs> of the game is you need to be the world's most average subsistence farmer <laughs> which is the worst theme ever i mean short of making a game about being you know whether or not you die on the way home from work at the sewage factory i can't think of a game theme that's worse than that right because you can't even you can't even be good at it right it's like if you decide to like i'm gonna be like the most awesome wheat farmer in the world you lose the game you have to be average and boring that's the core strategy and and so, it, it, you know, I was sitting with Rob Davio, friend of the podcast, um, one day, and he he won't play it because the theme just just bores him to tears. And I said, "Look, let's sit down and go through this. Now, what if we took everything that's in this game and we made it happen effectively in the Fallout universe? So everything is post-apocalyptic. So instead of having, you know, a cow, you have a mutant herbivore." Right. And instead of having, you know, instead of having a pig, you have a feral pig with tusks that are six feet long and you put artwork on the card of this crazy feral pig. Right. And instead of having a a hearth, you have a, you know, fusion powered microwave. And all of a sudden, the game started seeming a whole lot more interesting, even if you kept everything exactly the same. So we actually went through the process of like running through the core card set and all the core items and figuring out like what they'd be in fallout and uh we got pretty far along but then we just sort of realized the enormity of that game right just the number of pieces and the number of things we would have to retheme we never finally got there it's still on my list i still have all my spreadsheets where i was mapping all this stuff out and i still think it would be a more fun game even if you didn't change a single mechanic so you're talking i mean this first of all that's amazing secondly 
Um, if I am around, I will play Agricola with you because <laughs> I sometimes tell people it's my favourite game. I don't really have a favourite game, but I like it a lot, really a lot. And I do find it a kind of a fascinating thing to play. And you are right. I, I mean, I don't mind the theme, but you are right that the end of the game comes and, and you know, you have the checklist of, do you have any vegetables? I don't have any. Right, well, I'm afraid you're a loser. How many sheep do you have? Sheep? I don't have any sheep. I've got a field full of, of cows. Okay, well, I'm sorry, mate, but... You lose, you know, if, yeah. Yeah, um, which is in itself kind of funny. But if you made um, it about surviving the apocalypse, all of a sudden that would make sense. Well, this is it. You're talking about basically reskinning the whole game, not not touching any of the mechanics. Yeah, that was the idea. Is that you just you just go through and you like rewrite every card and you get somebody to redesign good graphics for it, and you've got a better game. I, I swear you, to God, do you, you genuinely would. think that would draw a lot more people in? I think it would. A Fallout themed Agricola would drag. You don't think that would sell fifty thousand copies? Well, it might do, and this is, it just says an interesting thing about board gaming and I guess how strong theme is and how much it appeals to people, potentially. I think theme's hugely important. I'm not saying that I disagree at all. I'm just, I'm turning this over in my head and I'm thinking it's kind of amazing that obviously you could, you could throw together a game that could be a good game, but the moment you get perhaps a famous license, Maybe that changes everything. Maybe that makes your game ten times more appealing. Well, I'm to not me, sure I don't know if it would. I'm but. not sure it's the license necessarily. I, I mean, I, I wasn't suggesting that being Fallout, quote unquote, with you know, with the TM after it is what would make it good. But I, I, yeah, you know, I'm, that, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I. Uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. Sorry, um, but you know, it's the idea that there's a new concept behind it that there wasn't before. Right. I mean, there's cer- certainly the case that sometimes the theme and a, a sort of a attached brand bolt right together for, you know, beautiful effect. War of the Ring being the best example of that, right? I mean, that that game succeeds because it is both a brilliant game design and it also captures the theme perfectly and it happens to be bolted to a license everybody loves, right? So that gets all three things right. And that's very mm. rare that you get that kind of trifecta. Uh, you know, of, of theme, brand, and mechanic. Um, I, you know, I think that, the, the, you know, if anything, the problem with Agricola is that it captures that theme awful damn well, right? That's part of the problem. The theme of, of having no food at the end of the season and <laughs> Yeah, begging. being an average yes. subsistence farmer. <laughs> you know, being a dirt farmer is not a glamorous job. But I think that says uh, something very interesting about the appeal, what, what the appeal of, game is, or of games is, I suppose. Um, and not, not that I disagree or agree, but a lot of the tweaks I made were just rules that I scribbled out on lined paper. And I was, I was really excited by those and really satisfied by those. But I can imagine other people coming in may want a bit more to their, uh, their game expansion than some kid's handwriting on a couple of pieces <laughs> of paper. <laughs> Well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, observations, things you want to point to? Julian? I, I, you know, I, I would just encourage folks. I mean, you, you started off, uh, you know, by talking about the Internet and how, uh, you know, now we, we live in a very different world where long before you even buy a game or learn the rules, there's this wealth of modifications already out there and house rules and and sometimes expansions that people have written for whole games that you you know that haven't even published yet in some cases and i would just encourage anybody who's 
you know, remotely interested in board games to, you know, spend five minutes and explore your favorite game on the web because probably a board game geek, but not necessarily. Um, because chances are there's like 12 cool things about your game that you didn't know that you could do with it or you could add to it. Um, so even if you're not necessarily the kind of person who's going to create that stuff from scratch, uh, you know, the, uh, practically every game at this point is really just the beginning of a toolkit. I think that's a really good summary. Um, riffing on that, I suppose, to some degree, I, I, I'd say absolutely do that. Look around, look at what other players have done, look at what they've played with. And also, I suppose this is part of what playing is all about. Actually play with a game, as in don't play the game just by the rules, but play around with it, experiment, feel that you can do that with any of your board games and get your kids to do it as well. Because I think a lot of this will, especially if any of us have kids, I don't, I know many board gamers do. Um, and a particular friend of mine finds this all the time. His daughter just plays the game with him, but says, no, we're going to do this today. And she's about six or seven and he goes, okay. And sometimes it works out as really good fun because I, I guess you get that childlike creativity of, of why the hell do I have to follow these rules? Why can't I play around with these? This is a game. This is fun. Why can't I play with these components as I want to? And I think that could be a great thing to, to share with your kids or even if you're a teacher, maybe with a class. Great. Uh, I want to close the show by plugging uh, a Kickstarter by uh, f- my good friend, uh, good friends and friends of the show, uh, Conquistador Games, uh, run by Dirk Niemeyer and managed by the amazing Bill Abner. Uh, their first two Kickstarters, Road to the Enlightenment and The New Science, both games have been very well received and both Kickstarters have been very well received. And here they are on their third one. The game is called Tomorrow, an Apocalyptic Nightmare. Uh, you're a world leader uh, after the end of the world, more or less, and you have to kill everybody else and make sure your people are okay. That's generally the idea uh, of the game. It's kind of scary, kind of freaky. The rules, I had a good look at the rule set. It's kind of interesting. So check out their Kickstarter. Uh, I could say tomorrow, an apocalyptic nightmare. It's just been up a day, and they've already uh, reached half their goal uh, because, you know, Board gamers are rallying behind the designs of Conquistador here, which is great. Uh, but they have 30 days to go, and they've got some great stretch goals. So I'm doing that for my friend Bill and my friend Dirk. Um, so please check that out. Thanks for listening, and say goodnight, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night.